2: On News Radio six eighty WPTF,
1: and I'm Doug Lewis, certified financial planner,
3: and I'm Deborah Lewis, certified financial planner, and we're here to answer your questions for the next hour. Well, Doug, what else is on our uh, your mind tonight in regard to financial planning topics, things that might have come up in the news or media or that you've been reading?
1: Well, you know, Deborah, since we opened up this program, what year was it? Nineteen eighty nine. Nineteen eighty nine. I. The media has has done something very strange. Uh, there has been more and more, I hate to say false information being peddled out there, but uh, there is this matter of fixed index annuities, and there was an article exposing these in the Wall Street Journal. The article was entitled, The Fallacy of... Of believing some returns are risk-free,
3: by one of our most respected authors, Jason Zweig.
1: That was Jason Zweig. Yeah. That's who it was.
3: You know, he really he was uh, really talking about these fixed annuities from a very um, academic point. But I think it's worth bringing up to our audience tonight.
1: What the 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 media is reporting, or what these ads are saying, a lot of them on the radio. It says, well, you can do that with what's called a fixed index annuity, a cross between an insurance contract and a market tracking index fund. Such a product typically is offering the public a minimal guaranteed annual return, along with an assurance of no losses in years when the stock market drops. In exchange, it delivers less than the full gain on stocks in years when the market goes up. Unfortunately, that upside is usually about 2%, maybe. Hmm. It know, may also assure retirement income and some protection against inflation to boot. So that's well, Doug, p- yeah, yeah,
3: Yeah, unfortunately, these annuities are often marketed so aggressively that you could be fooled into thinking you can get stock-like returns at no risk. And this just isn't true. You can't. Yeah, if you buy a fixed-indexed annuity, you have to lock up your money, often for 7 to 10 years, and sometimes even longer. And if you need your capital before then, you'll, you will have to withdraw, usually being subject to a surrender charge or a penalty that can run up to or even exceed 10% of the account's value. So
1: it's 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 not as it's being portrayed. That's right. That's exactly right. The, the focus there is on what I call the eggs, but your chicken is locked up. You want to get your chicken back, then you got as much as a 10% a uh, surrender charge or haircut to take now another risk is what we call the opportunity cost the additional money that you could have made by not buying the fixed indexed annuity in the first place while the annuity does put a floor under your potential losses, it also puts a ceiling on any potential gains. Oh, well, that's not good. The money, pe-
3: the, and many people who buy these products as a kind of stock market play for cowards have the wrong idea. Fixed annu- indexed annuities are not an alternative way to investing in stocks. And no, many people believe that.
1: That's right, they do. They're not. They're not. They have completely different risk and reward components they're an alternative to other fixed-dollar investments that's what they are so they, they they compete with CDs and treasury bills often however these products are marketed as if they were the investor's dream come true offering the upside of the stock market with no downside
3: if you want to call during the week to set up a face-to-face appointment the number is 919 919- eight seven two seven thousand. That's USA seven thousand. Also, we have a website at Lewis Financial Management. That's Dougandlinda.com.
1: DougAndLinda.com. The marketing message that's pitched out there is you'll make plenty of money if stocks go up while losing nothing if they go down.
3: Yeah, I mean even some of the other shows on, on WPTF, uh, you know, Presented as if it were this this uh, this upside potential only, and it's just not true. It's not true. Some insurance companies and their agents often will use charts showing hypotheticals, but not actual returns. And they're going to use these hypothetical charts that to imply that someone owning the annuity would have continuously earned the rate in, the, in place at the end of the period. And that's not true. Any chart based on these assumptions is just pure nonsense.
1: So really, a fixed index annuity might make sense if you crave certainty, if you can't bear the thought of losing money, you don't mind tying it up for a decade or so to earn a middling, piddling, assured return for the rest of your life. It makes no sense at all as a way to keep pace with the stock market at no risk. And I'm really glad that Jason Zweig and the Wall Street Journal decided to write an article exposing them.
3: And, you know, when you hire a certified financial planner like us at Lewis Financial Management, Doug Lewis... Deborah Lewis, both certified financial planners, you don't have to worry about being sold something that is in someone else's best interest and not at all about what you need, what your retirement need might be, and is just playing on all these fears of what they can sell you in a product that is trying to act like it would uh, eliminate these fears and all of the risks that might
1: be uh,
3: inherent to you making these decisions.
1: I was really happy this past year that several listeners had already sort of uh, bitten the bullet a little bit and uh, bought or getting ready to buy a fixed index annuity, but then came to see us to get an independent analysis of what was this product.
3: You make a good point because there were several people this year. There were. And um, if you're one of those... Listening tonight, give us a call at 919 872 7000. Call us this week. Make an appointment. We're at 919 872 7000. Lewis Financial Management will help you evaluate what you've been looking at and uh, we'll help you answer that question. Well, Doug, let's take a caller now.
1: Well, Chris, this is Doug Lewis, certified financial planner. How can I help you? Yeah, I have a question. I'm in the process of buying a house
4: and I'm trying to decide what type of. what type of term to go with. Uh And people have told me in the past that if you go with a 30-year loan and if you make an extra payment towards the principal each year that you would in turn almost pay it off in the same amount of time that you would on a 15-year loan. Uh Is any of this true or...
1: Well, it may be true and it it may be not true, but in either case, it's irrelevant. It's not part of the equation that you're concerned about. First of all, if you end up 15 years from now... With a house with no mortgage and the inability to buy any food to live in the house, would you be happy just having a house paid off and no groceries? No, no, of course not. Okay. So the goal isn't to see how fast you can have a house with no mortgage on it. The goal is to see how soon you can achieve what's called financial independence. How old are you, Chris?
5: Thirty-three.
1: 33 years old. Generally, a 30-year on uh, will give you a greater tax savings than a 15-year mortgage, okay. because the percentage of your paycheck, of your payment to the bank, is going to be bigger on the 30-year mortgage than on the 15-year mortgage, okay. and that means that more of your payment will be refunded to you in the way of a deduction on Schedule A on your tax return, which basically means that you have more money to invest towards financial independence. Now, if a person doesn't choose to start investing, then they're out of this equation totally because it only works if you're going to be accumulating what you save. If you go ahead and take a 30-year loan then you are stretching your payments 15 years longer, yes, but your goal should be to accumulate the difference that you're not paying in your your mortgage payments. That money should be directed into an accumulation vehicle like a mutual fund. So that at the end of 15 years, and when we run these numbers in my office, we very often see because of the power of compound rate of return, at the end of 15 years of investments, you may be only halfway through your mortgage or maybe even less for example, how much is the mortgage you're going to take out?
4: The loan is 113.
1: All right, so your goal should be at the end of 15 years to be able to have maybe 200 or 300,000 accumulated. Have your house still halfway through your mortgage, then you can write a check for the remainder on the mortgage. Let's say you have still 60,000 left to pay on your mortgage. If you've got $250,000 accumulated, you write a check for $60,000, you pay off the mortgage, and maybe you've got one hundred and seventy, or one hundred and eighty, or one hundred and ninety left in cash, plus you still have the home paid off. Do you see what I'm saying? Uh-huh, sure did. That's the power of the compound rate of return because the 15-year mortgage will only go down at a simple rate of return. Okay. Uh, also, you will get a better tax relief along the way. So at your age, you want a 30-year amortization rather than a 15-year well, I certainly appreciate it. Jot down my office number. It's eight seven two seven thousand. That's nine one nine eight seven two seven thousand. And some people remember that as just USA seven thousand. All right, great. Thank right. you for calling. Great. Thank you. You're listening
6: to Money Matters with Doug and Linda Lewis. Well, Doug, that was a really
2: uh, sort of underscored what we talked about earlier. Chris's call.
1: Exactly. There is no one-size-fits-all. How do you get started with Lewis
3: Financial Management? Linda, how about you take that question?
1: It all begins with a call to
2: our office in Midtown Raleigh at 919-872-7000.
1: So, if you've got a pencil near you, write down that number also, because that's the way you get to meet with us face-to-face that number again is
2: nine one nine USA seven thousand. So basically, what we do is we gather information over the phone, and then we send you a packet uh, so that we will have everything that we need for the first meeting with us, right, Debs? That's right. And with these, uh, with this information, what we do in our office is we produce reports that we will use in your initial financial advisory consultation. And at that meeting, we identify the questions that you want to get answered, and we will give you advice
3: on how to accomplish each of your goals. And each person's situation is going to be different, Doug and Linda, as we all know. So listeners that um, will list, be longtime uh, listeners who will call us and want more information, they all fit into a certain category, but each and every one of them ranges in different ages and stages of life. And some want to start their first investment. Others may have accumulated over a million dollars, but each one has questions about their own situation. So call us, call us tonight, uh, 919-860-9783. And call us during the week. That number is 919-872-7000.
1: I'm really happy when clients come in for that first meeting. Uh, That first meeting, when they come in, so often they tell me, this is really what I've been looking for. This is what I've been looking for. I've gone to see other radio people after I listen to their uh, phone number and I go and meet with them. And what I get is a sales pitch. But what you're giving me, Doug, is you're giving me answers to my questions. You're giving me advice. Now you're not trying to sell me something. I am so happy that I I finally found a place that I can go in and I can bring questions and get answers and not have someone try and give me a sales pitch. So how do you get started with Lewis Financial Management? You pick up the phone, you write down, you you pick up, Let's start over again. You write down your pho- our phone number 919 That's 919 You also go to our website which is DougAndLinda.com. and then you call the office and make an appointment to see either me or Deborah. and that's how you get started.
3: Yeah. It's um it's where most people say that they uh, they heard about us, was listening to the radio show, and um, and we appreciate that. So that's why we enjoy coming in on Sunday nights. And when you make an appointment to see us, it's really to make an appointment to get started. Right. Or maybe to
2: get a second uh, opinion. When you have a plan and a planner to work with you, you'll know that you'll accomplish these goals and you'll get to your own personal f- finish line. You'll finally be on the way to financial independence with confidence. You're listening to Money Matters with the Lewis Family on News Radio 680 WPTF.
1: Let's take Betty's call. Betty, this is Doug Lewis, certified financial planner. How can I help you?
4: Hi, I have a question about how much in our circumstances we should spend for a home in this area.
1: Okay, how old are you, Betty?
4: It's my husband and I, and we're in our middle later 40s. Okay. And we have a combined income of about $70,000 dollars
1: All right, 70,000 combined income, both of you working? Yes okay. any so children?
4: One that's independent.
1: So no children uh, living at home. Right. Really, it's financial planning for dinks, dual income, no kids. Right. Right, okay. Uh, and that's a category of financial planning. Financial planning for Dinks has its own set of, uh, of parameters. Now you've got a combined income at 70000 What are your living expenses running, Betty? How much do you have left over at the end of every month?
4: I would say we have
1: at least $1,500 left over each month. Okay, so you've got $1,500 excess each month. Right. All right. How much are you paying for rent right now? Uh, about $700. $700 a month is what you're paying for rent. You've got 1500 excess. Now let's talk about your, first of all, job security. How safe are both of your jobs?
4: There's no sign that they're not secure.
1: Let me ask you now, what does your investment portfolio look like? What do you presently have in non-retirement investments?
4: We have about $150,000 cash. All right. That's about it.
1: So you have no 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 investment portfolio at all, just cash. Right. All right. Now, what do you have in your retirement portfolios?
4: We have um, probably about one hundred fifty thousand dollars. Also, maybe maybe one hundred seventy. Let's say one hundred
6: seventy at this point. All right. Did you all just sell a house or something? We before did. you moved here. We That's did. Why. We just, we just sold a house.
1: Okay. How much did you sell the house for? Um. For about ninety-five thousand. Ninety-five thousand, and what? Uh, all right, so, so some of the money that you've got came from the house, but also right. some of it has just been this fifteen hundred monthly excess that's been accumulating. Yes. Okay, uh, I would say that the first thing that bothers me about your situation is you have no investment portfolio, which means that if you're in the forties. You've got money locked away in retirement plans that you can't touch for another 20 years or 15 years and yet you don't have any investment portfolio that can support you. So that's the first thing to think of. Okay. Now, the second thing to think of is what can you do to accumulate? Well, you can do two things and you need to plug these two things in when thinking about the house. The first thing is you can think about a pay-yourself-first investment plan that will go ahead and automatically be investing for you the excess monthly income that you're talking about. The second thing is that the home that you buy should be bought with the least amount of cash, meaning the, the smallest down payment. Okay. So, uh, now when we put these three things together, I personally think that if your income is only at 70000 combined, I would not go above maybe $120,000 to $140,000 home. Okay. That's the range that I would go in, okay? I would try to stay as low as I could. It's just the two of you, so you don't need a real big house anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'd go ahead and maybe try and put down 10%. Or if you had to put down 20%, the question is whether you have to pay PMI or not, and that would let you set aside the balance of your $150,000 cash to begin an investment portfolio. It would be nice if you could try and keep your mortgage at your present rental income. You see what I'm saying? Uh-huh. If we could get it, and my only thought there is that I'd like to see you use that $1,500 monthly excess because that's a very powerful asset that you've got that will accumulate for you probably close. Well, I wish I could do it real quick for you. I can't. But you are going to accumulate a very large amount of wealth in the next 20 years at the rate of 1500 a month. That's a big dollar figure when you put years onto it. And that's where I would focus all of my attention.
4: Okay.
1: Without anything more specific in front of me and no computer here, that's the best advice I can give you. If you'd like to call my office and set up an appointment, I'll go ahead and actually review the specific numbers with you and gather some information if you want.
6: All right. Yeah, and that number, Betty and Raleigh, is nine one nine eight seven two seven thousand. That's nine one nine USA seven thousand. Okay. And I'll be happy to send you, you know, some information if you have any further questions. And thank you so much for calling. All right. Thank All right. You. Take care. Bye bye.
1: You know Deborah, many years ago, when we opened up this radio program uh, and began uh, receiving callers and clients coming to the office, uh, the concept of a young pre uh, young couple getting married was almost unheard of coming for financial advice. But as you say, it's very different now. We're seeing a, a number of younger ones looking for what, of course, is wise financial advice?
3: You know, it really is, and it's probably just a function of the fact that people are accumulating assets before marriage. They're getting married later in life, and they're seeing more and more people, some in their families, some in their friends, who are getting divorced. And maybe some of those those impacts have made them think financial uh, advice is something that they definitely really need to get. And it's a good way to start a marriage and to start the relationship off uh, in a healthy way.
1: Yeah, a lot of these are... Uh peers of my own financial planners who offer premarital financial planning say they work with couples beyond the nitty-gritty details such as who's going to pay the bills and where the couple's going to pool their money or keep their accounts separate they're taking on more of a counseling role to help couples deal with the emotions that can complicate financial decisions for example the stress that can strain a relationship In a newly married couple, when one partner decides or tries to exercise too much monetary control...
3: You know, when Cheryl Monk was writing this article, she was interviewing a whole bunch of uh, CFPs and financial planners and different advisors. And I'd have to say, I agree with the next quote. We are more psychologists in this position than we are actually financial planners when we're dealing with young couples. You know, it's the root of so many problems in couples' relationships. It does come out in these meetings that you have uh, with our clients.
1: And that's been our experience through the years, uh, in the later years, that we do end up Very often in the realm of being a counselor, like a psychological counselor, the first thing, of course, they find out is there need to be no secrets. For the process to work, couples should be willing to openly discuss their spending habits, their assets, their liabilities, their financial goals. Because if you have secrets in a marriage, that's not going to help your marriage. Only when people are open about how they feel can inevitable differences be addressed, Uh, There was a financial planner named Renee Kwok who was cited in the article. She was a CFP, and uh, she was working with a young couple who planned to buy a house, but they had very different views on how much to spend. Yeah, the
3: future bride was much more frugal than her fiancé, and it was an emotional sticking point. She talked to the couple and talked them through the different scenarios and ran financial projections. And then she asked the young man to consider how spending less would be more prudent and how it would ease his fiance's anxiety. The couple ultimately decided to take a more conservative approach based on the future bride's concerns. And these meetings were a real forum for creating a compromise because you see people's emotional reactions so that we can sort of be a salve on that possible wound.
1: I'll never forget the one couple. (laughs) I won't mention their names, but they will chuckle if they're listening tonight because this was about 20 years ago when she and he sat in my office for their first meeting. And I remember she said to him, well, he said to her, do you really need to have 30 pair of shoes? And she turned to him and said, well, what about all those golf clubs
3: you got? <laughs> <laughs> right. So it does bring stuff up. Whether you're getting married uh, in the future or have been married for a long time, financial issues bring this up.
1: Yeah, some people have no idea how much the other person spends or how much credit card debt he or she's carrying. And they're really surprised when the information comes out during these types of discussions or consultations.
3: There was a young man who uh, actually went through this process, and he says that the premarital financial planning process got him and his now wife um, started on the right financial footing before going through the process. The couple hadn't even given any thought to saving for retirement or life insurance or or any of these big issues that were going to come up and he had been putting all of his money back into his business and didn't know how much of a profit he was making or how to calculate monthly living expenses or how to budget appropriately. And now, after going through it, he feels that premarital financial planning is so important that he encourages his friends and his employees at his own company to take the time to do
1: it. Yeah, it's been an effective way for the couple and other couples that he knows to gain a shared understanding of their individual and their mutual financial goals and to save for the future. So if this is your situation out there and you are young and thinking of getting married, don't feel financial planning isn't for you. Call us at the office at 919 872 That's 919 And we will schedule a personal consultation for you. And I would say this to parents of young ones. Uh, We've had a number of parents over the last couple of years who have felt they'd like to give such a consultation as a present to their children.
3: So that they have the financial footing to start their life on the right foot. Exactly. You know, and go to our website, DougandLinda.com. It's another way to get to know us. You hear us each Saturday and Sunday night from six to seven. We are Lewis Financial Management and And um, this show has been a place where anyone could call in and ask their
1: questions. And and this is why we're here tonight. Jennifer, this is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. Deborah Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. How can we help you tonight, Jennifer?
3: Hi, thank
5: you so much for taking my call. You're welcome. Um, I was wondering, I recently went back to school approximately 14 months ago to work on my PhD. And when all is said and done, I will have accumulated approximately 50000 in student loan debt.
3: Mm-hmm.
5: And I was wondering if it would be wise to refinance my home to put the student loan debt into the mortgage and have just you know, one payment with the mortgage and the student loan debt combined.
1: Well, let's, let's, let's get a little more in the way of facts. And you may be onto something here, Jennifer. How old are you?
5: 47.
1: You're 46. Are you married or single? Married. You're married. Any children at home?
5: No.
1: Okay. Uh, what's your income? My income... Oh, wait well, wait a minute. You're going back to school. You have no income.
5: No. I, I went back to school part-time. Oh, okay. So I, I do work full-time. Um, combined with my husband, we make approximately 90000
1: Okay. 90000 combined income. Uh-huh. And without the matter of the student debt, uh, what are your expenses running?
5: Approximately, I would say... Twenty five hundred a month.
1: So, and on an annual basis, would you guess thirty or forty thousand a year? Meaning you've got a fair amount of surplus.
5: Yeah, fair amount.
1: Okay. All right. Now, how much are you putting? Well, tell me a little bit about where, you, where your investments are at the present time.
5: Well, we um, are just investing in retirement accounts, and we have approximately hundred thousand in retirement accounts.
1: And is that 401ks or IRAs?
5: Um, both.
1: Okay. All right. So you got 100 thousand in 401ks and IRAs, and what do you have in personal non retirement investments?
5: Um, we don't have anything in personal investments other than our home. That's it.
1: All right. And your home, of course, is not an investment. Your home is a, what we call a use asset. All assets are either use assets or investment assets.
3: Give us a call during the week at Lewis Financial Management. Make an appointment to sit down face-to-face and discuss your, your situation. The number at our office during the week is 919 that's Lewis Financial Management nine one nine eight seven two seven thousand.
1: All right, so you can go ahead and get this fifty. Uh, the the cost of the school is going to be fifty thousand additional, or you've still got some old debt. Nope, that's it. There's
5: the fifty thousand additional.
1: Okay, so you're going to borrow fifty thousand dollars, and you want to know: should you use a student loan, or should you go ahead and wrap it into a home loan?
5: Right, because we owe, our our home value is about two hundred thousand. All right, and we still owe our only debt is besides the student loan, is our mortgage, and we only owe How one hundred and five on that. One
1: hundred and five. Mm-hmm. All right. So if you took out the fifty on the hundred and five, now is this going to be fifty thousand per year, or is this? No, comp- no, that's the college loan she's got. Right, that's fifty thousand total for my PhD. No, she means oh yeah yeah what well, she's going to be covering over okay. the next three years.
5: Um, no, I should be done, actually, in probably a year and a half. I'm really killing it. I'm wow. working really
1: hard. <laughs> Boy, I didn't do mine that fast. That's pretty good. <laughs> okay, so, uh, well, I'll tell you what I might consider. Of course, one way to do it, of course, is look at the uh, at the PLUS program. Uh, but the other way that I think I might look at it is adding it into the home loan, but using a home equity because the home equity would let you draw it out as you as you need it, you don't need the whole fifty thousand in one time right. In other words, you can you me may, maybe you need twenty thousand at one time, then twenty thousand another. But you're right; the principle sounds good. Uh, I'd like to I'd like to meet with you first, though, and find out a little more about the breakout of the expenses. Some something doesn't sound quite right the way you laid it out. If you're making ninety thousand a year and you're only spending what you said, and yet you're still not accumulating anything into a personal investment portfolio, it sounds like you may not have uh, as good a control of on Understanding of your inve- of your expenses as possible.
3: Yeah, and that's really where we need to spend some time is 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 finding out. Well, what is it on the monthly level? What's going to be left over? What what
1: is available to be captured? Are you overfunding a four hundred and one k by any chance? Um, probably not overfunding. Well, I mean, no. are you are you are you funding it beyond the match limit of the employer? That could be. All right. And that's a no-no. You should never do that because you want to be building two investment portfolios as you go through your working years. In an earlier uh, part of the show tonight, we talked about uh, seeing your life in decades, in pieces. And of course, you're in your 40s. Yeah, cycles. Mm -hmm. So you're in your 40s. All right. Well, as you move into your 50s, You move into your 60s at some point you need to be seeing that you're building an investment portfolio that is non-retirement as well as retirement because when you stop working and start drawing from the investment portfolio i'm sorry the retirement portfolio it's going to cost you double the tax of what it would be from the non-retirement portfolio and you'll say to yourself wow why didn't anybody tell me this? Why didn't I build the other one up?
3: Right, right. So you, ideally, you want to have two equal pots to pull from as an income source when you retire. That makes sense. Doesn't it? It, it really yeah. does. It's like two pockets on one pair of pants. Then you can look at the investments in each of these as a total picture, but having different tax consequences. So, once you start balancing out some of the, the pluses and minuses, then you realize, okay, well, maybe maybe I am overfunding. If you would like to make an appointment, we would love for you to um, come in and see us, and we can talk about your number specifically. The number in Raleigh is 919-872-7000. And... Um, Please do, because it sounds like this would be a, a good time to get in front of, how do we pay for this 50000 Well,
1: she's young enough to where she can Absolutely. really look at, how do I become one of those middle-class millionaires? Right. So much of the time, we talk about middle-class millionaires on the air, and it doesn't take a huge wealth to do it. It takes early discipline.
3: Yeah, Jennifer, uh, give us a call at the office. Um, I'll be back by the office later tonight to get some of the messages that are usually left after the show, and I'll give you a call tomorrow. Our number... Raleigh is 919-872-7000. And um we'll just look at your scenario much more um
1: in, in detail. detail. <laughs> yeah, thank you for calling tonight, Jennifer.
2: Have a wonderful week.
1: All right. Well, you know, I really appreciate uh getting callers from the ones that are in their 30s and their 40s because these are the ones that have the ability to touch the magic of compounding.
3: Yeah, as do I. The the magic of compounding, it makes so much more sense when you have years in front of you. The power of... Putting aside a monthly basis, 500, 1, 000, 1, 500, 2, 000, five hundred, a thousand, fifteen hundred, two thousand, five thousand if you have that extra at the end of the month. Whatever it is, if that's going in on a periodic basis and you are, quote, paying yourself each month, that power of the compounding interest is your friend. You you all of a sudden can look back in a decade, in a cycle of your life and say, Wow, I accomplished that.
1: This is what Einstein called the eighth natural wonder of the world.
3: Well, What is my investing fee? And this can be a quite frustrating experience. Um, Just finding out what might be the answer to this simple question can often be maddening, hair pulling. (laughs) So um, I thought we might bring this up tonight because this is a question that a lot of people want the answer to.
1: Yeah. If you're out there listening, you also might question something that you think is simple. How much am I paying my investment advisor in fees? Well, it's sort of interesting because this same question was raised by a Wall Street Journal financial reporter who uh, became, in in her article, she said she was ashamed of how little she knew about the workings of her own investments. So she decided to research what fees she actually was paying to invest with her financial advisory firm, which happened to be one of the largest in the United States. She also said that her investments were only in
3: mutual funds, not in individual stocks. So it should be fairly easy to find this answer. So she decided uh, to, to pursue answering this question. And she assumed that the fee information she was looking for would be readily
1: available. Yeah. She says that she told the man who she spoke to, who answered the phone that day, that she wanted to find out what fees she paid. (laughs) <laughs> and he told, yeah. he told her there's a $125 annual flat fee and that's it. And okay. alarm bells went off in her head.
3: Right. She's like, really, that's it? Uh, and she's, you know, she said, well, I've always assumed that there was a percentage charge on my investments.
1: And when he came back and said, no, that's the only fee, she became increasingly dubious. And, and that's
3: when he said, well, each fund in which you're invested has internal fees. So she came back and said how do I find those out? <laughs> and he said, well, if you uh, give me a little bit of time, I'll take you to the website. They went to the website together. He couldn't find it. He didn't know where to point her. And she said, OK, I give up. And and her next step was a thought that said, well, wait a second. I meet with this guy who's the financial advisor who's representing this firm. Uh, periodically, I meet with him for an account review. Maybe I'll send him an email and ask him, how much are my fees?
1: Yeah, that got nowhere. And then her irritation, she says, seemed to set off alarm bells at the company. So what happened was she received not one but two calls from a supervisor now suggesting that really he'd be able to help her.
3: That's right. And then the man that she spoke to that time proceeded to tell her that the The exact opposite of what the first advisor had told (laughs) her, that there was no one hundred and twenty five dollar annual fee. And that was only for people who were investing in stocks. Remember, she doesn't own any stocks and that her portfolio had an annual fee of point eight
1: five percent. Wow. That's high. Eighty five hundredths of one percent. And that it was deducted quarterly. So, so, then, yeah, yeah. so then she said, well, what about these other internal fees that the other guy told her? He said, oh, those will range from anywhere about 0.4% to 0.8% annually. So that's another bunch of money that's added on there. So what's the actual number she wanted to know?
3: And that's when he said, well, you're invested in the moderate risk basket. So the expenses average 0.55%. Okay, now she has an answer to that question. That's what it's costing her. However, she said, well, she... Finally had the answer to what the fees were that she had paid, but she still remained in the dark about where this was documented. And about that time, she received a response from the advisor who she normally had these scheduled visits for the portfolio reviews with. And that's when he cited her the 0.85% number. So (laughs) she's now gotten a third person to give her a third number. And he said, oh, but the internal expense fees are about 0.5%.
1: So she figured out, all right, so if I add it together, my combined fee is 1.4%. Well, mm. you start thinking about that 1.4%. That means on a million dollar portfolio,
3: that's $14,000
1: $14, a year, but at least she figured out she got some answers. She's not sure where she could find it. It wasn't documented anywhere, but that was the end of her quest. Right. Right.
3: Now, at Lewis Financial Management, we send our clients written receipts of our clients' fees because we know that this is an issue, and we know that clients should not be searching and stumbling in the dark trying to answer that question. If you need help, call me, Deborah Lewis, 919-872-7000. 919-872-7000. So, Doug, how do you get a straight answer about advisor fees?
1: Well, I think the two... Word answer to your question, Deborah, is just ask. Okay. You know, you should be. Well, really, I mean, I think any listener out there should not be ashamed to ask the financial person they're dealing with, what about my fees? Yes. It's the very least a financial advisor owes you is a transparent explanation of what's going on.
3: Some may make it seem like rocket science, but it isn't. They're using complexity to confuse you. And you're not getting straight. If you're not getting straight answers, you understand
1: that you understand. Just go somewhere else. Most. Yeah. Yeah, you're right, Deborah. I mean, that's the whole deal. You you need to go somewhere else if you don't get straight answers about your fees. Most investors don't know how much their financial advisor uh, is paid by them. Uh, there was a survey that said the overwhelming majority, it said 60% of investors don't know. But my experience is meeting with, for 30 years with clients. They come to me in my office for their first meeting. They ask me to look at their portfolio, and I look at it, and and I say, well, do you know how much your fees are? And a 100 I've never had anybody that can tell me. They all are confused. They don't know what their fees are. That's right.
3: Now, your current statements can be lengthy, and many say that they need... Uh, to be ready to provide a simple explanation of how they are compensated. Well, here are some questions that you should ask so that you'll know what your advisor fees are.
1: Yeah, now, you, you should even write these down. If you're listening tonight, write down those questions. Your first question should be, how much do you charge me for advice? That's right. You should ask your
3: financial advisor if you are charged an annual fee, usually split across each quarter of the year, or if you pay a commission for each transaction. These charges should also be available on your account statements under headings such as fees and charges or factored into the overall
1: performance of a given investment. Once you get that question answered, then you want to ask another question. Are there costs tied to individual investments? What are these costs called, Doug? Well, many mutual funds charge what's called 12B1 fees for marketing distribution, marketing or distributions, which are often about a quarter of 1%. Well, some, however, can be as much as 1%, and there's a big difference. If the fees that are attached to a mutual fund are a quarter of a percent per year, that's one number. If they're 1%, that's four times the other one. Now, unlike commissions, 12B1 fees don't appear on transaction confirmations or on client account statements. Again, your financial advisor should be willing and able to explain any underlying investment costs.
3: But investors can also rely on research from Morningstar or FINRA to determine these costs. Investors in fee-based accounts should also ensure that any 12B1 fees are rebated against their annual fee. Otherwise, the advisor might be getting paid twice for the same investment.
1: Yeah, now that's an interesting thing because this, uh, this next question that I'm going to give you has to do with if you're in a managed account. Right. Very popular these days. Right. But if you're in a managed account, you shouldn't be paying 12B1 fees also. So your question is, in a managed account, are there any extra costs that I'm paying?
3: More financial advisors are encouraging their clients to put their money in managed accounts. These are these personalized portfolios of stocks and bonds chosen by the money manager. Such accounts are usually charged a fee by the brokerage firm, similar to your run-of-the-mill based account, fee-based account. But they also tend to come with an added fee, as much as five point five percent charged by the investment firm managing the account.
1: Yeah, actually... Uh, There was some uh, literature recently in the public press or some articles in the public Mm -hmm. press. Merrill Lynch is stating that those fees together with what the brokerage firm charges could push the annual cost to as high as two and a half percent of the portfolio's value. Now, if you think about two and a half percent altogether on a million dollar portfolio, that's twenty five thousand dollars per year. That is a huge number. Right. And so what- that's a huge drag on what the investment portfolio can do. That is the drag. That's exactly right, Deborah, because that $25,000 comes right off the top, whether so, you make money or lose money. So, Doug, what other services
3: should someone ask whether or not their advisor?
1: Provides. Okay. So we have these questions. Question number one, you should ask is how much do you charge me for advice? Question number two, are there costs tied to individual investments? Question number three, in a managed account, are there any other costs? And then question number four, what other services do you provide for me? Because if your advisor has simply put you into a diversified portfolio and he's charging you a fee of as much as one and a half percent, be sure to ask if he or she is providing any other services like tax advice, estate planning advice. After all, advisors earn their fee regardless of how your investments perform. If you make money or lose money, they're getting that fee. An advisor who's charging that much money should be providing you much more than just a suggested portfolio. And, of course, we're very proud of the fact that at Lewis Financial Management, that is what we pride ourselves on, giving service. Service not only about investments, service about income taxes, about estate, estate planning, wills and trust, about cash flow planning, all of the things that are on your financial mind.
3: Go ahead, get started. Give us a call during the week at Lewis Financial Management. Make an appointment to sit down face-to-face and discuss your, your situation. The number at our office during the week is 919-872-7000. That's Lewis Financial Management, 919-872-7000.
1: We have another caller. Mark, welcome hey. to the show. Hey, How can we help you, you today?
4: Well, my father uh, owns some land in Wake County, about 50 acres, and he is uh, considering giving me and my brother a, a portion of that land, uh, probably four or five acres apiece. Right. Okay. And he's going to just give it to us free and clear to uh, build on or, or do whatever. We He was concerned, uh, one thing, about uh, when he does pass away, um, you know, The uh, taxes and stuff. What's the best way to do something like that? If he wanted to give us four or five acres free,
1: he's right. First of all, he's talking about what's called the basis on the property, right? And the step-up in basis rules is is what he's realizing would not apply in your case. How much is the property worth right now?
4: We're guessing the whole farm would be probably worth uh, six or seven hundred thousand.
1: All right. We got to figure out the cost of the gift. How much he's giving you? To oh, know, to about ta- eighty thousand. All right, so he's giving you about eighty thousand dollars. Yeah. And what's his cost in it? His cost was about eight thousand. All right. So, and how old are you, Mark? Thirty-two. Thirty-two. So you've got probably and your dad. How old is he? Uh, Fifty-seven. All right, so your dad's probably got another 30 years. That means the land's got another 30 years. I personally don't think there's, I mean, there's not much you can do about it. You could buy it from him and get the cost basis back up to $80,000. But if he's going to give it to you, well, Linda, what kind of taxes do you think we're looking at now? What kind of tax issues are we looking at?
6: Well, probably a gift tax. A gift probably, tax. That's the big thing that you're looking at here.
1: Yeah, I think that's the thing that nobody is looking at, but you're asking about really the capital gains tax. What What your dad is saying is that if he gives you this property now, yeah. and then when he dies, you decide to sell it, and let's say it's worth 200000 then, you'll pay capital gains tax if you sell it after he dies mm-hmm. of maybe a hundred thousand yeah, dollars yeah and on the other hand if he goes ahead and let and owns it until he dies and then you inherit it right. and sell it then you can sell it tax-free that's what he's saying mm-hmm. but the, but that means that he's got to own it all the way until he dies and he's too young a man to be thinking that he's you know like that right
6: are you married Mark yeah.
1: But so, that's the capital gain tax issue. Now, what Linda's talking about is the gift tax issue. hmm The gift tax issue has to do with the tax on giving stuff away. Right. Even at his young age, though, I wouldn't worry about the gift tax as much. I might try and go ahead and buy it from him if you had the cash. See, I guess
6: the thing I was wondering is because Mark is married, the dad could essentially gift to each, right, right. to Mark and your spouse. Mark, mm-hmm. your wife
1: right. I think I just let him give it to you. I don't I don't see any reason not just to go ahead and give it to you outright but like right. Linda says split the gift so his estate tax isn't impacted too much.
6: Why don't you do this, Mark? If you have any other questions, write them down. Call us at the office. Our number is 919-872-7000. Okay. That's USA 7000. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks for calling. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye Bye now.
3: You know, what's interesting about many of the questions that we get in regard to uh, either after the show or during the week when we're at the office is really wrapped up in the question of retirement planning and often rooted in common misconceptions that People have either heard or thought about, or um, been told, or uh, you know, just have been have been sort of absorbing and not concentrating on how whether or not they apply to them or they don't apply to them.
1: You know, Deborah, I'm I'm glad you bring up that subject because probably. At least 50% of the meetings we have at our office for consultation, somewhere in the first 10 or 20 minutes of the meeting, I hear a statement like, well, I've always been told or I've always heard.
3: (laughs) Well, isn't it true you should? (laughs) Yeah. And
1: and these are these common misconceptions that are out there. Right. So I think it's a good time to hit them. Let's hit them. Okay. Well,
3: sometimes this conventional wisdom can steer retirement savers really wrong. So don't you just follow the standard financial advice you need to challenge it and we've brought to light a couple of these of these challenges one misconception is that the 401k or IRA plan offers retirement income
1: yeah vehicles like 401k plans and IRAs are good ways to save Because you do build tax-deferred savings. And if you simply follow the mandated required minimum distributions, you'll have retirement drawdown strategy. So what's the problem with that? Well,
3: while you're required to take distributions out of these plans, starting at age 70 and a half, it is not a retirement income strategy in the true sense of income, because withdrawals impact your total savings and are not
1: truly income. That's right. If we just take talking about withdrawals, that's getting your money back that you put in there. That's not really retirement income. Now, what's another misconception, Doug? <clears throat> well, another one, of course, is that retirement calculators are accurate. When you research a plan for retirement, you're going to find many versions of devices that there are out there called retirement calculators, and it's okay to fill in the blanks and then let them provide a number.
3: So what could be the problem? Well, the calculators might give you a rough idea of how much money you must accumulate, but they won't address your personal situation or help you plan for guaranteed lifetime income. And that's, again, just saying, well, if they told me I needed to uh, have X amount of dollars, I should be fine. Many people find out they aren't.
1: I think of the thousands of personal consultations I've had through the years, I've never seen two personal situations which are <laughs> identical. No calculator is going to solve the personal situations.
3: Another misconception is set your asset allocation and forget it. Big Most one. people know that you should make, some, make sure the money in your 401k or IRA is diversified.
1: Your savings
3: shouldn't be invested in just one type of asset class.
1: Now, what's the problem? Well, what the advice doesn't say is this. When you're about to retire, then you need to reconsider your pre-retirement asset allocation and add other choices to the mix. The plan that you developed when you were 35 certainly won't work at age 65.
3: That is so true.
1: You know, another misconception is that all reverse mortgage strategies are bad. Yeah, the problem there is that retirees should consider whether this option might provide benefits as part of a diversified retirement strategy. In moderation and properly managed, a reverse mortgage can provide peace of mind in the form of tax-free cash flow for a retirement plan, and I've seen that happen.
3: If you hear something tonight that sounds like your situation... Call us. Set up an appointment. We can help you. 919-872-7000. 919-872-7000. Another uh, misconception, Doug, is that financial advisors consider all options available. (laughs) Well, you better ask, has your financial advisor discussed asset allocation with you? How much of your money should be invested in stocks? how much in bonds, how much in mutual funds, how much in cash, even real estate, how much should you have?
1: Yeah, so what's the problem? Well, advisors don't talk about comprehensive financial planning. What do, you spe- what do you specifically do with your major sources of savings? Your rollover IRA, your 401k, your personal savings, the equity in your home to create retirement income. Each of these has its own tax and other considerations. Just assuming that your financial advisor is considering all these ap- uh, options is a big misconception. Deciding how to use them most efficiently in your retirement income plan may be the biggest contributor to retirement income success.
3: So what's the bottom line? We would say that saving money is a simple but important concept. And as you approach retirement, it is just as important to determine how much income your savings can provide. So call us this week at 919-872-7000. Let us go through and help you with your financial
1: decisions. And thank you for listening us. And joining us tonight for Money Matters with the Lewis family, Doug, Linda, and Deborah Lewis. Tonight, we discuss tax breaks for 401ks, fallacy of fixed index annuities, down payments on homes, seeing a financial planner before marriage, and common retirement misconceptions. Now, join us each Saturday and Sunday night here on WPTF. Visit our website, DougAndLinda.com. And remember, your money matters because your financial future is at stake.